This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we build professional development systems to help engineers and their firms grow. You can now download our recently published AE Industry Trends Report, which contains answers to the following questions. How long will the great resignation last? Are firms still allowing remote work and how is it affecting their productivity? How are successful firms using data to create people-centric cultures? You can find answers to these questions and more in our latest report, which you can download at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to the episode number 13 of the Engineering Quality Control Podcast, a podcast focused on helping engineering professionals ensure their projects are of the highest quality. The goal of the show provides strategies and concepts to help you ensure and address quality control on all of your work. I'm your host, Brian Wagner, professional engineer. And in this episode of the Quality Control Podcast, we'll be talking with Brendan Smith, a licensed architect with more than 25 years of experience and is currently an Associate Director of Quality at Canon Design and an AIA National Codes and Standards Committee member. We're talking about the different aspects of coordinating between architects and engineers and how they look at different matrices from a local level to the corporate level so that they can make sure that they address quality control across the board. So let's jump right in. So now I'd like to welcome our guest for today, Brendan Smith, Associate Director and Quality Control at Canon Design. Brendan, welcome to the Engineering Quality Control Podcast. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me on the show. So just to get started, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your career path and maybe how you got to where you are today. I got my career in architecture at KU. And uh, after a short stint delivering pizza and frantically looking for my first job, I finally landed one with a, a big A&E firm. I worked there for a couple of years while I was working on my IDP to try to qualify to take my licensing exams. And I found in a big firm, it was a little tough to get the broad range of experience I really needed to do that. So I left for a, a very small firm. Uh, sometimes it was just me, the boss, and one other person. It was a real dive into the deep end. I worked on absolutely every part of a project from start to finish, you know, working with contractors, consultants, clients, design, technical, the whole bag. So I learned a whole lot there and eventually got my license. After a while, though, working in a small firm, I felt I was kind of topping out what I could learn there and wanted to sort of broaden out my peer group, the people I could work with and learn from. So that's when I uh, left and ended up at Canon Design, which is where I am today. Again, we're, we're a big A&E firm. Worked there as a project architect for most of the time, had kind of a focus on quality throughout that time. So eventually became an office quality leader, which is someone that uh, works, you know, reviews other people's projects in the office, um, implements and generates standards, things like that. Late last year, became associate director of quality, which is moving up into a, a firm-wide role. We have, uh, I think, 17 offices now. So it's uh, kind of like the office quality leader role, but expanding over the entire firm working with other firm leadership on uh, continuous improvement of our, our designs and the quality of our executed work. I think that's great. And it's, it's really neat to see different people's projections and how they carried through their career. I spent a lot of time with a very small civil firm. So 
it was the same thing. I was in everything, but I've spent some time at some bigger firms where I was, I don't want to say pigeonholed, but you don't get that wide diversity of experience, a whole bunch of different projects at times, but it would depend on that structure and that group. As an architect and the highly technical work that we do, because the work that we do is worth millions of dollars, right? And maybe it's probably even more prevalent as you are now more at a higher level with all those different offices. But how do you approach coordination with engineering partners and other disciplines? So we do, I mean, there's all the usual stuff like uh, Bluebeam Studio sessions, scheduled QC reviews at project milestones, usually weekly project calls with the full team where we work through outstanding issues, 3D models for coordination, things like that. But I think more conceptually, what's really important is that we talk to the engineers about our design goals. So they're not working blind. We walk them through the same design presentations we give to the clients, discuss the qualities of the spaces we're in. Is this a really feature space that needs to be sharp and clean? Is it a back of house space that doesn't matter so much? What are we going for there so that they can work toward that same target? Those conversations lead us into the technical stuff where we talk about what are the appropriate systems for these spaces or the types of fixtures there, setting things like target ceiling heights, no fly zones, you're getting into that stuff before they've started to lay out all their ductwork and piping so they don't have to backtrack. And it's also important that we talk to them about their systems and their work and get a deeper understanding of what's critical to them, what are their goals, what are the things they need to know from us and when. And so it's really good if we can see the same kind of development from the engineers that we do, you know, schematic level and DD level, not just, you know, waiting until all the floor plans are decided and set and then start, you know, filling in ductwork and pipes and stuff like that. We can work together more conceptually from the beginning. That really helps us do less rework and it gives us more time to ensure that we're coordinated and doing quality work. That's great insight because I think a lot of people end up in that tunnel vision where this is what matters to me and I need to get it done because I have to hit this deadline because there's a backlog of work and there's other things that have to be done. And sometimes that communication falls short because it's, well, that's what I need. How do you address that sometimes? Like, well, that's just how it has to be. Even though you know, based on your experience, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way or where you can inject other approaches through that communication, right? Yeah, it's all just about communication. We all generally know what we each individually need to be doing and need in order to be able to do that, but we don't always know what everyone else needs. Sometimes we take that for granted. We need to be a little bit more explicit with people and say, this is what I need from you. This is when I need it. This is a higher priority than that. There's oftentimes you have those conversations and and you realize, well, I was working on this thing because I thought that's what you really needed. And in reality, it was this other thing. This thing can wait a little while. So it's just important to get that clarity out there. So switching a little bit from the project base to your role at Canon Design, where you're overseeing many offices with us, presumably many projects and many project managers with different styles and different approaches and different a wide range of experience, I'm sure. How do you kind of manage quality and what the expectations are from, I guess, maybe like a corporate level, but like from that overall level, how do you manage or how do you approach ensuring that the high liability scenarios don't happen or that you can kind of catch them in the wind before they do happen? Any thoughts on that kind of aspect? It certainly is a, a challenge. We're talking about a you know firm with 17 offices, 1,200 people, countless projects ongoing in a different 
phases throughout the whole uh, life of a project. But it starts first, I guess, with having our standards and processes available to everyone in the firm in a central location. It's on our intranet. So everyone has easy access to this stuff. Same toolbox, the same rules of the road. They're ever evolving, of course, as, as we keep up with changes in codes, best practices, lessons learned, et cetera. Always having that available, the best thing we have at any one point in time that someone can grab from. It's also really important that if anybody finds any issues with that or a possible improvement or something, you know, we want to be able to capture that so uh, everyone benefits from any one of the 1,200 people's knowledge. To do that, you really need a network of people with a, a good feedback loop. And it's, you know, it starts with finding the right people for all positions and training them and supporting them because everyone makes decisions about the quality of the work all day long. And you need to be able to trust people to get it mostly right, but everyone needs support too. What we have is a, a network of office quality leaders, one in, in basically in each office, a couple of them monitor more than one office. They're people who help to guide the teams. They reinforce and implement our standards, review projects. They look out for potential problems that, so that they can get addressed early. You know, these are usually very senior architects, very experienced people. So they've seen a lot. They know when they see a problem coming. It's also really good to have those people so that they can bring the great ideas that they're seeing at the desktop back to the whole firm so that, again, everyone benefits that's usually where we see the best innovation happening is right there on a project and somebody's facing a specific challenge and finds a unique way to work on it. And then, so we've got that, that network of office quality leaders, and then there's the director of quality and three associate directors of quality, myself being one of them, who manage that firm-wide coordination of those quality leaders, meeting with them regularly. We decide what our actual standards and processes actually will be, you know, what we're incorporating, what's the best practice at the moment, and you know, provide support and we monitor some high-level data then across the firm. One of the ways we do that with the project data is uh, we have a project database and visualization tool that tracks a few key metrics the office quality leaders input on their local projects. So we can get a snapshot at any point in time of what's happening firm-wide and what's happening at each office level. And that allows us to keep that high-level look at what's, what are high-risk issues that might be coming up. And it focuses our conversations then back down to the office quality leaders and how we can support them. What kind of metrics are they putting in that you're really looking at at a corporate level? So we do a few things like risk assessments on each project. And we're trying to track sort of what's the level of risk on any given project. Some are small projects and it's very simple and easy. Other ones, maybe it's a very big project or it's a unique project or using a unique construction type or something like that where it maybe bumps the level up a little bit. So we have this sort of local assessment of what's the risk level on anything. And we can kind of dive into discussions about what kind of support do you need on that? What's going to help you diminish that risk? We track a, a few other things just to make sure people are following their standards and, and so on. There's been a couple other guests that we've had on the show that have talked about risk and, and really that's what quality control and quality assurance is trying to mitigate is some of that, those errors and omissions, those things that are going to cost you or your client in the long run. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really about, you know, the quality assurance portion of that is getting ahead of it and finding out what those risks are very early on, just as you're starting the project. You'll generally know most of what's going to be a risk on that project. It's, it's also evolving as, you know, new things happen. You can do a lot uh, right from the start. So over the past 
two years, depending on when you're listening to this, in the COVID realm of what we've done as an industry, things have changed. Things forced our hand to change something. Some companies were prepared, some were very not prepared for remote work and, and those scenarios where we distributed or delegated a lot of authority to individuals that worked independently. How has COVID and remote work maybe affected you or maybe you are already doing a lot of things. I know a lot of the architects, especially the bigger firms that I've worked with, they were very much deployed and very much prepared for remote work in a sense. But I think it was a learning curve for all of us to how to communicate and maintain that those best practices and also come up with that best solution. Because there's a lot of value I see in walking past somebody's desk and asking them a question about why they're doing something the way they're doing it either to challenge them to answer that question or even just understand it myself because I want to learn from what their idea is. How to have you addressed that and worked on that over the past couple of years, leverage technology or other things? It's certainly been a challenge. As with any challenge, there are also some opportunities to learn and grow in that. We were pretty well prepared technology-wise, you know, more so than some others. We have our own data center. We worked on virtual machines. So that allowed people pre-COVID to just work when you're traveling, work from home occasionally or whatever. So we'd been doing that, just not at quite the same scale that we needed to. So it was not too much of a hiccup for us when we switched to everybody working from home. The things I think that were bigger challenges or more of a long-term thing were that we are lacking those day-to-day -day, uh, small interactions with personal and professional ones with teammates. You know, the opportunities for spot mentoring at a desk, you can't walk past, see what somebody's working on, ask them about it, sit, sketch with them. And also just uh, how do you maintain a, an office culture throughout that time? All those things that, that tended to happen organically before, you now need to be more intentional about it. You know, we'll schedule more targeted times for an entire team to be in the office together for things like charrettes or focused working sessions. And then, you know, scheduling still social opportunities, happy hours. Some of them were virtual in the beginning and you know, gradually more in person. And I think for the desktop sorts of things, you have to schedule one-on-one -on -one check-ins with everyone. You don't know what, what they're working on or if they need help. You really have to start to reach out and, say, and, and ask them those questions. You know, pull up your screen, share your screen, what's uh, going on, what do you need help with? But even with those type of challenges, there are positive things that we can take away from this experience to improve our, what was our standard operating procedure. One of the things is when we talk about technology, this was a real opportunity to force a lot of people at once to adopt some new technologies that you, you know, we may have had, but weren't necessarily in widespread use. They were, you know, just sort of more slowly gaining ground, things like Microsoft Teams, Google Docs, SharePoint, OneNote, all those sort of collaborative tools that were there. But sometimes you have people, you have the early adapters that love it. You get the people that are kind of dragged along eventually, and then you get the people who say, I'm never going to use that. I'm used to my old way. This kind of forced you to get a critical mass of people really quickly up to speed that really kind of leveled up a lot of people's efficiency and communication at once. We did things also like moving our all-office stand-up meeting to being virtual. There's some benefits to that too. Now people who were traveling and couldn't normally attend now can and still call in and, and see what's going on in the office. Uh, keep some some amount of touch with everyone. The other thing I think is is really struck me too was with project meetings. All of our project meetings went virtual, so now we had the ability for the entire team to listen into every project meeting. It wasn't any longer just a couple of people going to meeting 
they come back, write up their notes and distribute them a day later. Now, the, like even the youngest of staff can hear everything that's happening in the meeting. While they're continuing to work at home, they can be listening in, they can hear straight from the client, uh, no interpretation necessary. And they have a better understanding of the project for that and can also react faster. And that's another form of new mentoring opportunity. People who wouldn't normally be in these meetings or get minimal exposure to them are now seeing the more senior staff. How do you run a meeting? How do you talk to clients? How do you deal with sometimes tense situations or tricky issues? Now they're able to see that. And it's also been a nice opportunity for that younger staff to get experience contributing in front of the clients because sometimes a question comes up and the, the person who might normally be in charge or in the room has an idea of a, you know, a little bit of everything that's going on the project, but not always the specifics. And it might be an intern who's like really in the weeds on one particular issue. So when a question comes up with that, you can call that person up and, and you know they're in the meeting, they can speak to it, something that they know well about, they get an opportunity to get some confidence in speaking to clients with something that they, they really know well. It's a good thing for us too, because the client sees, well, you, you, this team's got a really deep bench. It's got people who are really responsive. They really know what they're talking about. And I think that's a thing that's going to really pay dividends later on down the road too, when that client has a, another project that comes up and you're submitting a proposal for it. It used to be that usually maybe one or two people maintain the primary client contact, the client relationship. Well, now if you submit a proposal on a new project and you've got all your team resumes in there, clients looking through it and they're seeing five, six, seven people in there that everyone's name and face they know from these meetings and who had been just delivering good work for them, helping them out of problems day in and day out on that last project, that really puts you in a pretty good position for securing that next round of work. Well, I think that's a great idea and to invite more people to those virtual meetings. I know some people have, have leaned to just doing, instead of going to somebody else's office or something for those preliminary talks, let's just get on a Teams meeting and have a face-to-face -face conversation where Two years ago, they weren't comfortable in front of a camera. They weren't comfortable with the technology. But now I, I feel like my phone has every different meeting app possible because everybody's used different things over the years. Yeah. And people have, have realized that, you know, actually, sometimes it is, you know, it can work. Things you, you thought, now we all have to be there together. You actually can do virtually and sometimes can do pretty well, you know, pulling up a screen and zooming in on a drawing and flipping the screen to somebody else's material. It's things that you have a little bit more readily at hand too that you know maybe you wouldn't if you were just sitting in a conference room somewhere. I can't remember how many meetings I've been to where it was like, oh, I didn't bring that plan or I don't have that detail. But with virtual, oh, here, let's just bring it right up. Let's go into the CAD file. Let's talk through this. Yeah, it's all right there. So uh, yeah, I mean, if we don't learn from this whole situation and kind of level up our, our standard operating procedure, you know, shame on us because there's been a lot of great lessons. So speaking of great lessons, I like to always include a segment in each podcast with, we call it the power of experience segment, but something that maybe you learned or didn't learn that you wish you knew sooner, wish you would have been told or taught or some insight that you could give to, especially the, the up and coming listeners that from your perspective, something that you just kind of wish that they kind of take away from this conversation. Don't wait to be an expert or think that you can't be an expert in something. Make yourself one. If you see an issue that uh, no one's addressing or your team you know, asks for a volunteer to, do, to work on something and you're not quite sure you're experienced enough for it, just 
jump in. You may struggle a little bit, but there are people there who want to help you. They want you to succeed. You'll learn a lot quickly by doing this and you'll be surprised how soon people will start looking to you as the expert. I kind of did that with code compliance stuff. I just got into it when I uh, I worked at that small firm and said, well, nope, there's nobody else here to do it. I just kind of panicked. I was like, you know, you got this giant thick book of codes. I have to know all this stuff because no one else here is, is going to be doing it if I don't. I got a lot of experience there. I still always feel worried that I'm getting code compliance right, but I sort of moved into a status there where I'm managing a lot of those materials and serving as a, a bit of a, again, kind of an expert voice on code compliance issues now for uh, the whole firm. Well, I think that's great. And that's taking initiative in our careers, but also even if somebody came and said, knew that you were the code compliance guy that didn't, you might not know the answer, but you might be able to help direct somebody to that just because of that experience, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. Nobody knows everything. Nobody is the one and only expert on anything. So put yourself in there. Do you have any other advice for engineers or anything like that that you'd like to share? Specifically for engineers, I would say, talk to the architects about your work. What's important to you on a project? What are you trying to achieve? What do you need from the architect? And when do you need it to be most effective? They want the project to go smoothly for you as well, but they don't know what they don't know about your work. Early in the project, there's also a lot of competing needs and desires, a lot of moving parts. You know, you should make sure that the architect understands what you need and don't leave that until just the the plans are set. You're trying to backwards engineer into a design. I think we all do that from time to time. And, And if we can communicate on the front end, it always makes things better on the back end. What's the best way to maybe get in touch with you if somebody wants to follow up or learn more about what you and Can Design are doing? I would say probably my LinkedIn page is the easiest way to get me. Just uh, message me right there. Thank you for your time. I appreciate spending a little bit of time with us. I know you're busy like all of us are, so I want to be courteous of your time. But like I said, I appreciate the valuable insight that you've provided and hopefully that many listeners will learn from it and take a nugget or some information from this and use it in their daily career. Well, thank you, Brian. It was fun to be on and uh, enjoying the podcast. So please remember that you can find the show notes for this episode at engineeringqualitycontrol.com. Just look for episode number 13. There you'll find a summary of the key points that we've discussed, as well as links that we've discussed, including getting to Brendan's LinkedIn, where you can contact him and follow up with your support and your idea. Until next time, friends, I wish you the best in all of your engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at Institute dot org.